This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.50, Awakening. And as always, we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong fan of Mecha, and as you watch these last episodes of Zeta, I would just like all of you to remember that the average age for the leaders of Axis, Ayug, and the Titans is now 24 and a half. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I can't decide if that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we'll need to discuss. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and truly at a loss to imagine how this will all end. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 322 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all. And special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Squeak, Casper N, who is a returning patron, welcome back, Cedric S, Wesley, MC, and David HB. MSB would not be possible without your support. What with one thing and another, we have been remiss. We too at MSB would like to wish you all a very happy Pride Month. Juneteenth was also this past week and really ought to be a national holiday. <laughs> For our listeners in other parts of the world who may not be familiar, Juneteenth celebrates when the last enslaved people in the United States received the news that they had been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, a full two and a half years after the proclamation was made. Uh, so a happy, slightly belated Juneteenth to you all as well. And on an entirely unrelated note, I have become a plague-era stereotype. I am cultivating a sourdough starter. It seems like I'm on the right track, but it's taking a long time to reach bread-making strength. Wish me luck. You also live in Brooklyn and make a podcast. What does that have to do with the plague? We were talking about stereotypes. Fair. This week we are covering the penultimate episode of Zeta Gundam, so now is a good time for us to give you an update about what the immediate future will look like for MSB. This week we'll cover Zeta's episode 49, Casualties of War, and we've got research on The Third Eye. Next week, on June 27th, we'll publish Podcast 2.51, all together now, covering the final episode of Zeta, Riders in the Sky. As we did at the end of Season 1, we are going to limit our discussion next week to the episode itself. We will save our final thoughts on Zeta as a show, how the series works or doesn't work as an integrated whole, for the following week, when we publish the as-yet-unnamed episode 2.52 on July 4th. In addition to sharing our final thoughts, we would also like to hear from you. So if you have questions about Zeta, things you've been dying to ask us all year long, theories, interpretations, or perspectives that you'd like to share with us, or anything you think we missed, now is the time. Send us an email at gundampodcast at gmail.com with the subject line Zeta Q&A, 
and we'll try to cover it on the podcast. Make sure you get those emails into us by June 30th so we have time to give them the attention they deserve. After that, we are going to take a month-long hiatus to prepare for our coverage of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta. We will still publish our regularly scheduled July bonus episode for supporters, but there won't be any regular episodes of MSB in your podcast feed until we make our triumphant return on August 8th with Season 3, Episode 0. Will I pronounce it Gundam Zzz all year? You'll have to tune in to find out. For now, let's tune in to the Titans News Network. Yo, what is up, Newsnoids? It's your boy, freelance online journalist duo Tom Gina, coming at you live from the desolate streets of what was once the busiest shopping district within Xeon's asteroid refuge, Axis. A few days ago, these now-silent avenues rang with the sounds of crowds going about their ordinary lives, much as they did every day since fleeing here after the fall of a Bawaku seven years ago. Today the crowds are gone, the whole asteroid city evacuated on the order of Supreme Commander Haman Khan, <laughs> so that it could be used as a missile to break open the gate of Zidane and crush the lunar city Granada. Oh no. I'm standing now in the Garma Zabi Memorial Plaza, empty, except for myself, and a few space-adapted pigeons left behind during the rushed evacuation. It's said that before his disappearance, famed ace Shar Aznable frequently came to this plaza to gaze upon the life-sized statue of Captain Garma astride a mighty stallion that dominates the center of the square. The restaurants, bars, and clubs that line the plaza were among the hippest, the hottest, and the trendiest on the asteroid. Today they are empty, dinners half-eaten, and drinks half-drunk. Maybe a little bit more than half-drunk. Above the hum of the still-active air filtration system and the electric lights, an emergency announcement still plays periodically. Her Excellency Maneva Lao Zavi has ordered all citizens of Axis to take necessary protective measures. Go to your designated evacuation transport and stay there, wear a normal suit, and practice spatial distancing by remaining at least 6 million feet away from Axis until further notice. It must be a bittersweet feeling for the people of Axis. They have finally returned to the Earth's sphere, only to once again abandon their homes. And in a stroke of particular irony, many of those who inhabited these rocky corridors during the long exile once lived in Granada, back when it was a Xeon stronghold ruled by Her Excellency Kaecilia Zabi. In a few hours, their new home will obliterate the one that they had hoped to reclaim. <laughs> Now, I'm going to be documenting the final hours of Axis all day, so make sure you like, follow, and subscribe, and don't forget to mash that Haro button so you get an alert whenever I upload a new report on you, Genki. Hello, I'm Nina Nina's daughter. Hello, I'm Nina Nina's daughter. Hello, I'm Nina Nina's daughter. Hello. Are you feeling all right now, Nina? Absolutely. Don't you worry about me. I'm just so excited to be back in the old broadcast studio. It feels right. In fact, I've felt at peace ever since we arrived on the Dogos Gear. That vacation at the Murasame Resort and Spa was just what I needed, and I can't wait to do my part to defeat Ayug, so that I never have to report the sky is falling. Okay then, we are going live in three, two... <laughs>
Hello, Titans News Network loyalists from the Sea of Tranquility to the smoking remnants of Kilimanjaro. I'm cyber news type Nina Nina's daughter, scientifically enhanced to be the ideal news reporting machine of the future. And as always, I'm joined by my longtime co-host, Lieutenant Gates Kappa. I don't want to alarm you listeners, but I am not alone here. I just saw someone in a normal suit run around this corner. I'm going to try to get a better look. Okay, it looks like a group of three rambunctious teens. I'm not sure how they got here, but it may be connected to the explosions that have been shaking the asteroid for the past hour. It looks like they're... Yes, I think they're looting that toy store. Those teens are looting. I'll see if I can sneak a little closer and get an interview with one of these dangerous miscreants. One of them has stolen a yo-yo, and and now they're... They've turned violent! I repeat, the teens have turned violent! Someone get me off this rock! And now the recap for episode 49, Casualties of War. The Argama races back to Grips 2 airspace, where the Radish and the rest of the Ayug fleet are now fighting both Axis and the Titans. Their pilots prep for launch, with the usual round of reminders to Katz to stay focused and keep his mind on the mission. As soon as Camille has launched, Jared appears over his shoulder, piloting the bound dock. While Camille dogfights with his sometime rival, Yazan and his wingmen take on Emma and Katz. Across the battlefield, inside the remnants of an old colony, Camille can sense that Katz and Emma are in trouble, and takes off to help them. For better maneuverability, Emma docks the Mark II with the G-Defensor, and Katz is ejected in a small, core fighter-like plane. Emma orders him to return to the safety of the Argama, but Katz is determined to keep fighting, even with diminished firepower. Emma shoots down Ramses, one of Yazan's wingmen, while Katz flies as deftly as he can, dodging every attack. But he gets distracted allowing himself a moment to look back at Yazan and gloat, he looks forward again to see that he is about to crash into a meteorite. He manages to change course so that it is a glancing blow, but it sends him spinning out of control. Yazan finally lands a hit. Electrics damaged, the faceplate of his helmet smashed, Kat seems only barely conscious when Sarah appears to him. She tells him that she is glad they met, that he will see her again soon. She embraces him and he smiles. All around the battlefield, new types and old types alike, Camille and Char, Fa, Bright, all the crews of the Argama and the Radish, Shinta and Kum, and even Rekoa, are all struck by an indescribable feeling just before Katz's ship crashes once more, this time to be completely destroyed. Full of a desire for vengeance, Emma attacks and destroys several more Titan's mobile suits, but Yazan manages to sneak up behind her. It is only a warning from the now incorporeal Katz that gives her time to partially evade the blow, but the Mark II is still so badly damaged she cannot continue to fight. She retreats to a piece of space debris and Beckner, watching from the bridge of the Radish, can tell she's in trouble. 
However, he also knows that to rescue her would put his ship and its entire crew in danger. He cannot put them all at risk, even to save his beloved Emma. But the crew make the decision for him. They all insist on going to her rescue. Their arrival chases Yazan away, but only temporarily. He swings back around, and while the radish shields Emma and the Mark II, Yazan lands multiple hits on the ship, including its bridge. Emma screams for Beckoner, while Yazan laughs, and the radish is racked with explosions. In shock at the loss of the radish, Camille is caught by surprise when Jared attacks. It's because of men like you that these battles won't end, Camille yells. When Jared counters that Camille has killed more people than he has, Camille insists, I am not a murderer! He seems almost sad as he fires on the bound dock, knocking Jared back into the exploding radish. Even the deaths of his enemies fill Camille with horror. Overwhelmed by the senselessness of it all, Camille screams, and the Zeta fires its beam rifle into the air. On the Dogos gear, Sirocco can sense him, and is disgusted by the display of emotion. He laments that there is no decency to be found in humanity, and tells Rekoa that only a leader with absolute power can change the people. She could be that leader, he suggests, for all that Rekoa has no desire for that kind of power. Soroko puts off any further discussion as they both join the battle. Standing outside her mobile suit, staring off in a daze, Emma doesn't respond when Camille comes to get her. I saw Henkin as he died, she murmurs. Camille tells her that they won't let them get away with it, that they have to put an end to the war. Mid-sentence and seemingly without being aware of it, Camille opens his helmet to the vacuum of space. Emma quickly closes his helmet again, asking if he realizes what he just did, but he ignores her question, taking her and the Mark II to Fa for return to the Hargama. As soon as the Mark II can launch again, Emma returns to the fight. While Haman fends off Sirocco and Rekoa, a huge blast tears through the Axis forces. Char has arrived with a mega bazooka launcher, joined shortly by Camille, and the fighting becomes even more frantic and confused. Haman deploys the QLA's bits to destroy the mega bazooka launcher, while Yazan and Rekoa gang up on Camille. Char turns his attention to Sirocco, and Emma arrives just in time to stop Rekoa from killing Camille. No one will cry for you, Emma tells Rekoa as they fight, but Rekoa claims not to care, claims that she is resigned to the path she's chosen. Camille tries to stop them, but they charge each other, and Emma lands a killing blow. Before she dies, Rekoa gives Emma an explanation, or perhaps a warning. Men think only of fighting and can only think of women as tools, or just humiliate us. Emma leaves her cockpit when Rekoa dies, but the Palace Athene explodes, knocking her back and into some space debris. Yazan attacks Camille once more, but Camille is suddenly surrounded by a pink aura emanating like flames from the Zeta. The aura acts as a shield, protecting him from Yazan's attacks. A beam shoots forth from Camille's third eye and his beam saber, somehow more powerful than before, slashes through Yazan's Hambrabi. He is finally able to go get Emma. She tries to move but can't, and when Camille asks her where it hurts, she tells him, everywhere. 
cats Jared, Rekwa, and Yazan have died, but the battle continues all around them. So the penultimate episode of Zeta. Everyone's dead. Tom proposed to me before I watched the final episode, having me attempt to make some predictions about how the series is going to end. But to be entirely honest, I don't feel like I have anything to make predictions based <laughs> off of. The show has given us no indication in any way of how it's trending. As Tom pointed out, it would be very on brand for them to end at the climax, to not really have much or any of a denouement after the climax of the show. To just be like, all right, here's the climax and now it's over. You know, we end this episode with all three factions still alive and kicking. Uh, they don't really explain why or how Axis and the Titans teamed up again, but here we are. The opening narration makes it sound like they teamed up, but then... During the episode, Haman orders all of her soldiers to attack the Jupitress. So this is a full-on three-way conflict. And the episode ends with the battle still raging around our characters. It opens with the Argama racing from the moon, where they had just barely managed to redirect the asteroid axis and prevent it from hitting Granada. They race back to the colony laser, which is now under attack, as the Titan's forces try to reclaim it from the Ayuk fleet. The Argama has spent basically all of Zeta racing hither and yon, crisscrossing the Earth sphere in a desperate attempt to be everywhere at once. And yet the story has never really acknowledged how exhausting that would be. We don't see the crew of the Argama run ragged by how overworked they all are in quite the same way that, say, the White Base was in First Gundam. It made me wonder about the Argama's role within the fleet. It doesn't appear to be the flagship, but we don't know what the flagship is. Who is in charge <laughs> right now? Is it anyone? Yeah, who is giving them orders? Is it every captain for himself? That seems like a bad idea. <laughs> Or is it all being directed from the office of Melanie Hugh Carbine on Granada, or under Granada, wherever they are now? Yeah, there's no clear sense of any ship's role. There's no sense of strategy, really, in the way AU has been deployed thus far. It contributes to the sense of every episode of Zeta being a little bit disjointed. You never know quite where you are in the story or in the world or what's going on. Or as you pointed out when you were talking about trying to predict the next episode, what is going to come next? Except inevitably, there will be a mobile suit fight. There will always be a mobile suit fight. I also realized the show may not actually answer the mystery of what it was that Haman and Camille were remembering. The show might just leave it. The show might just be like, ha, you get to wonder about that forever. Which is worse, not having any mysteries or having a mystery that never gets solved? Mystery that never gets solved, because then it's just uh, cliffhangers for the sake of cliffhangers. It's like bait. All questions and no payoffs. You want to talk about no payoff. Let's talk about Jared Mesa as a character. Oh, man. Jared appears in this episode uh, 
right after Camille has launched from the Argama, his appearance is kind of unexplained. He's just there. He flies alongside Camille in his bound dock, which he's flying now for some reason. It's almost as if they've been drawn together by fate, or maybe Jared has just been flying around the battlefield waiting for Camille to come out because that's the only thing he cares about now. Did you notice when the bound dock first appears, Camille has a reaction to it, I assume, because the last person he saw piloting it was Rosamia. So it's jarring for him to see the bound dock here. I loved the moment when they're fighting. Camille feels Emma and Kat's in trouble and takes off to go help them. And Jared is like, how dare you run from me? <laughs> because Jared cannot imagine any other reason to leave their like one-on-one -on -one duel. Because right. Jared doesn't care about anything else. So how could Camille, how can Camille possibly care about anything else? And later in the scene, Jared is going to say, you and me, Camille, we are the same. If anything, you're worse than I am. You've killed more people. But this shows the difference. The difference is... Jared is obsessed with Camille, and Camille does not care about him. It also gets at that underlying difference that we identified. Jared may have had some vague notion of making the world better early on, but it's become clear as the show has progressed that he is all about the attainment and preservation of personal power. He has no interest in anything ideological. Uh, and I think that's what Camille is getting at when Camille says, I'm not a murderer. Mm-hmm. Camille has killed a lot of people, but it's been with the goal of ending the war, with the goal of freeing people from Titan's domination or potentially Xeon Axis domination. Camille only kills people when he doesn't have a choice. What do you think Jared meant when he told Camille, you're the one that kept urging me to fight? Jared is doing what Rekua did and what a lot of the villains in this show have done. He's blaming other people for his own decisions. Jared could have given up this rivalry at any point. He could have done what Camille did and just moved on from it, but he never did. He always kept focusing on Camille, and at every step, at every stage, he made the choice to double down, to go harder, to do more horrible things so that he could try to catch up to Camille. So no, Camille is not the one who was urging Jared on this whole time, but the specter of Camille, the phantom of Camille that lives rent-free inside Jared's skull <laughs> is the one who has been urging him on all this time. The perceived rivalry, which has always been one-sided. See, this is what's great about Jared's final line as he is vaporized, is he yells, Camille, you're my... And he gets cut off before he's able to say what Camille is to him. Mm-hmm. I think he must be saying, you're my rival. That would make the most sense. The alternative, since they've just been talking about uh, killing and Camille has just denied being a murderer, Jared might also be yelling, Camille, you're my murderer. But I think it's rival. Because for Jared, it's really important, this rivalry, this relationship with Camille. Kind of like the way Katz felt about Sarah, now that I think about it. Zeta is full of one-sided relationships. Yeah, it is. Like Sirocco and Rekoa. Sarah and Sirocco. Emma and Henken, to some degree. Camille and everybody but Fa. <laughs> I don't know. At least one of the fours seemed to like him. I think the show here is actually working to deconstruct the idea of the heroic rivalry. 
There's nothing heroic in this. It's not driving either of them to be better or stronger in any way. And this, I think, is a direct attack on First Gundam, on its legacy, and on the rivalry between Amuro and Shar. Jared is no Shar. Jared ultimately ends up being an almost pointless character and a totally pathetic person. And Camille is not driven by the rivalry to excel. Camille is not Amuro pounding on the wall and yelling, that damn Shar. Shah may. Camille doesn't care about Jared. What is driving Camille to get better is his desire to protect his friends, to fight injustice, and to save whatever vulnerable teenage girl happens to be around. Yeah, if the most important things a character does throughout a show amount to, you know, killed X, Y, and Z character and died by the hands of character A, that could have been accomplished by someone else. <laughs> uh, Camille seems legitimately upset at having to kill Jared, which is a little surprising, but they've just been having this conversation, which is quite intense. And it leads into a clearly upset Camille posing a bunch of questions as if to the universe about, frankly, the nature of war. Now, this does coincide with the ultimate destruction of the Radish and the deaths of all of all of those Ayug crew members. So it's possible that what is really getting to Camille is that, in addition to having to kill Jared. I think it's cumulative because, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but Camille's arc through this episode is that all of this death is pointless, that this is wasteful, pointless death. And that includes enemies as well as friends. That's everyone. And this is not coming out of nowhere for Camille. This is very consistent with how he has been developing through the whole series. And his questions to the universe sort of branch into two categories. One is an indictment of the sort of character who seems to take joy in fighting, a Jared or a Yazan. Or a Shar. It's like, how is this fun? How is this fun in any way for any person... And then the other side, the pointlessness of it all. How is this satisfying in any way for any person? Who does this m make happy? Who does this help? And he does a classic, you know, screaming, firing into the air while he is saying these things, while he's thinking them. So what's really interesting about that, when he's saying these things, he actually stands up in his cockpit, in his chair. His hands are not on the controls. There's a fade directly into the shot of the Zeta firing overhead. It strongly implies that the Zeta is doing that without Camille using the controls. So a bit of nice foreshadowing for later in the episode then. Yeah, I think so. I think the question Camille is really asking here is like, he's challenging the idea of a, a noble, a glorious death. What is good about this? There is nothing good about all this death. Even the heroic deaths of the crew of the Radish who die because they came to save Emma, death is still death. God, I was so moved by that scene because Beckner absolutely was not going to go. He wanted to. He desperately wanted to save Emma. He still is in love with Emma, but he knew that to do so would be to risk the entire crew of the entire ship, and he wasn't going to do it until several of his crewmen said, I'm going to turn the ship to go get her. And he's like, wait. And they're like, we can't leave her there. 
and he apologizes to them, even though it feels very much like they're making this decision as well. He apologizes, presumably because he could overrule them. He could tell them no, but he's going to let them do it because he wants to protect Emma. Well, and I think they know that that's what he wants. They know he would never do it, but they really care about their captain. He must really be beloved. I really wish Zeta had spent more time with Beckner and the Radish and less time with Bright and the Agma. I know Beckner didn't make the greatest impression on us early on, but... He might not have seemed like a particularly good captain early on, but he was a really fun, interesting character. Absolutely. And the fact that he inspires this in his crew is pretty incredible. But by the same token, you know, who was he to decide that however many dozens or hundreds of people on his ship were a fair exchange for one person? That the whole ship and its place in the war effort were a fair exchange for one mobile suit, you know? It... <laughs> Spending lives so cheaply, like water. So I want to ask you something about Jared and Yazan. But before we do, I have something else I want to bring up. Okay. Do you think that by this point in the show, Jared is a cyber new type? No. Even though he's piloting a mobile suit for cyber new types? Maybe. I don't know. I was going to say he has not shown any of the mental instability <laughs> that we tend to see from cyber new types. But then again, neither did Gates. Maybe that's only for women. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He was recuperating at Kilimanjaro, which is the same place that they were working on for. It does seem like the sort of thing Jared would volunteer for because he's so desperate to compete with Camille that he would say, okay, do whatever you can to make me better. And he did seem to get a lot better after the Kilimanjaro arc. It's an interesting theory. I don't think we have any basis for believing it. <laughs> It's like plausible, but we never see him get the new type flash. We never see him do anything or react to anything in a way that we know is the visual shorthand for new types. Eh. Lots of good conjecture, no evidence. All right, all right. So back to Jared and Yazan. Why not just make these two into one character? I have no idea. <laughs> I could ask you the same question about Four and Rosamia, actually. I mean, the fundamental difference between the two of them is Jared is driven by this rivalry. Yazan is driven by a love of killing, it seems like. Yazan just really likes to fight, and here fighting means killing lots of people. And when Camille is talking to both of them in this episode, uh, he says almost exactly the same things about each of them. People like you are the reason that people are dying. You're the reason the fighting continues. Uh, you have to be stopped. You can't be allowed to continue. I mean, I think with Yazan, he does say, you're a garbage person and you need to die. But yes. it's not that different from what he says to Jared. <laughs> Other contrasting point. When Rekua got involved in Jared and Camille's fights, Jared was like, get out of my way. I want to kill Camille myself. <laughs> when Rekua, or I should say when Yazan gets involved in Rekua and Camille's fight, he's like, no, come on, let's fight him together. <laughs> it's weird to see Yazan. Be the only person who believes in teamwork. <laughs> yeah. He did seem to work well with the other Humbravi pilots, Dunkel and Ramses. I suppose Katz believes in teamwork. Mm. 
I mean, believed and kind of. And with the Yazan fight, we get the culmination of something we've been seeing, which is a growing awareness in Camille about certain aspects of being a new type and a strengthening of his abilities. I assume the two things are related. Hmm. Early in the episode, in addition to the new type sound that we hear frequently when someone senses something, which he gets when Emma and Katz are in their fight, there's also a little flash of lightning across his forehead, which I don't believe we've seen before in Zeta. It was more common in First Gundam. Yeah. And the new type sound that that plays there is actually different. It's not the usual sound. It's more like lightning striking. And then by the time he is having this realization that life is the very basis of the universe, that he is very focused on human life, so we'll go with that for now, but that human life is the source of like energy of the universe, the thing sort of to his mind holds the universe together. We get that flaming pink aura that is actually having a physical effect. So we've seen the auras of Haman and Sirocco have physical effects on each other's mobile suits and on each other's bodies, potentially. This is the first time we've seen one of those auras act as a shield or act as armor. We also see a light shooting out of Camille's third eye, which is to say uh, a spot on his forehead, sort of above the bridge of the nose and between his eyes. I'm going to be doing some research on that. I know there's also a chakra there. That seems relevant. (laughs) And this light is not only a barrier capable of deflecting blasts from Yazan's weapons, it also enhances the abilities of the mobile suit. It makes his beam saber uh, super big and more like a whip that he can use at long range. Yeah, the power of his beam saber is much greater than anything we've seen before. Also, the Zeta in its mobile suit mode is able to catch up to the Humbrabi in its fast space stingray mode. So he's also enhancing the the speed and the, the thruster output of the Zeta. When this happened, were you surprised? It was a little surprising, but in a good way. Not in a what the heck are they doing <laughs> kind of way. Something about Camille's various realizations through this and a few previous episodes you know, probably as far back as his almost bonding with Haman until now, he's been sort of having these epiphanies, right? It also feels like an extension of recovering from the weirdness we saw in the last episode. He had cultivated in himself this extreme detachment from the fact that he was killing people because that helped him be okay. But in this episode, he's admitting to himself he's not okay. He thinks it's all pointless and horrible, and he's willing to let himself feel that. And that's a powerful thing, being willing to acknowledge your emotions instead of shoving them deep down and pretending they're not there. And what about the connection between Camille's new type abilities and the Zeta's capabilities? Did you find that to be believable, consistent with the fiction as as it's been expounded so far? So not really. Um, (laughs) Part of the problem is I do have a tiny bit of exposure to future series where I think they get into more of a like feedback loop between pilot and mecha. Are you talking about Iron-Blooded Orphans? I am. 
She's seen one season of Iron-Blooded Orphans. Don't tell me anything else about it. But uh, so from that perspective, this is clearly a way that Gundam is going to go. So it's not surprising to me to see them begin to build toward that. And we've seen moments where someone's mobile suit's damaged and they're in pain and we can't exactly tell why. Mm -hmm. And then we have this as well. But there's never been any explanation in universe. Up until now, everything they've told us about new types in combat is simply that they are better able to react, to perceive, to even pre-perceive when something is about to happen, but that it is a matter of like reaction times more than it is any kind of enhancement to the suit itself. In first Gundam, we actually had, you know, no matter how good a new type you were, if you were in a bad mobile suit, it was not going to be enough. Would you feel better about it if you knew that, say, hypothetically, in the deep lore, uh, there was a special system installed in the Zeta that has never been mentioned in the show, but which allows the pilot's new type powers to connect to the machine? You're me. It's called the biosensor. You know how I feel about media that rely on external lore to make sense. You love them? I'm against it. That's, I, that makes it not a well-created work, in my opinion. If your TV show doesn't make sense unless someone reads a bunch of magazine articles written after the fact, then you, you done messed up. <laughs> Honestly, it feels like something that all the writers knew and then somebody realized like, oh, wait, we never actually explained that in the show. Whoops. Speaking of new types. <laughs> That's a transition. <laughs> what do you make of Katz's death? Well, I guess there are two things about Katz's death that interest me. And one of them is about new types. And that's that when Katz dies, he like broadcasts his dying feeling to the whole battlefield. And it really seems like everybody feels it. Right. Not just people who we know are sensitive. The entire crew of the Radish, the entire crew of the Argama. Bright, who... We have really good reason to think is not a new type at all. Beckner, who we've never had any indication he's a new type, like Caesar. Yeah, just uh, just everybody, including Rekoa, though she clearly doesn't understand what happened because she's shocked later when Emma tells her about Katz's death. And I think I would say this is more evidence in favor of Fa's interpretation of new typism that she was sort of hinting at in the previous episode, that it is not a binary distinction, new type, old type. Everybody has the potential. Everybody is at least a little bit sensitive. And it's a matter of how good you are at listening to it and how loud the sound is. Well, and on the other side of that, while we had some indication that Katz was a new type, we had no reason to believe he was a particularly strong one. And yet his dying feeling transmitted to all of these people. And so you know, clearly, again, it's not about, well, some people are very strong new types and some people are very weak new types. We don't know where Katz fell in that lower end of the spectrum, but still he was able to transmit this because of the circumstances. Uh, Intriguingly, there is one person depicted in all of this who may not have felt it, even though you would expect him to. And that's Sirocco. See, I think given his later reaction to Camille's emotion on the battlefield, Sirocco did feel it. He just doesn't care. <laughs> that's possible. When he talks about 
Camille's feelings. He holds his head and says, I can't stand this feeling, people fighting driven by raw emotion. He doesn't just mean Camille. I think he's referring to cats. I mm. think he's referring, you know, possibly even to people like Jared and Yazan. He is referring to a lot of people on the battlefield mm -hmm. transmitting strong feelings at the moment. But I wonder if everyone who is feeling Katz's death so strongly is a person who in life had a connection to Katz. Now, the uh, strongest evidence against that is um, Katz is really, really obnoxious. And it's hard to imagine like every crew member on every AU ship being like, ah, oh, that Katz kid, we love him. But that would help explain the conversation between Emma and Rekoa later, in which Emma warns Rekoa, when you die, no one will cry for you. No one will mourn your death. As directly contrasted to Katz's death, which caused everyone to mourn. Well, Katz, and she includes Henken in that. Before we move on completely from Katz, though, it felt very appropriate the way that he died because he basically did what everybody has been warning him not to do forever, which is, you know, everyone keeps telling him, you need to keep your mind on the mission, keep your head in the game, keep your emotions under control. He took a little moment to celebrate a good dodge or a good hit. I don't even remember now. He crashed, sending the G-Defensor out of, or he's not in the G-Defensor at that point. He's in the little like core fighter shuttle-y thingy. <laughs> yeah. But he crashes, he's out of control, and that's when the killing blow hits him from Yazan. Well, even that is not the killing blow, which that was the other thing I wanted to say about Katz's death. It is almost torturously drawn out because he doesn't just get blown up or vaporized or even just crash. He crashes, he tumbles, he gets shot, he drifts, sees Sarah one more time, broadcasts to the whole battlefield, crashes again, and then explodes. He dies contented. Sarah says she was glad to have met him. And when he says, oh, well, will I get to see you again now? She says, yes, which seems to soothe him. Yeah. So I agree with you that his death is sort of the ultimate conclusion of his arc in which uh, all of the decisions he's made and his absolute refusal to change his ways comes full circle. I think that's the case for all four of the characters who die during this episode. You brought up Emma and Rekawa. I strongly feel that this death scene is meant to buy a little sympathy for Rekawa. Hmm. She doesn't get a redemption arc, but I did find myself feeling sorry for her. She has that earlier conversation with Sirocco, throughout which, may I point out, Sirocco's like looking off into the distance and she is looking at him. She looks real angry at the beginning of that conversation. I wonder if this is a moment of realization for Rekua, or if this is sort of the last straw on something that she has known all along. But Sirocco goes into classic dictator mode. You know, the people are indecent. The people are just like naturally horrible. And the only thing that will save them is a strong leader with absolute power. The world is a mess and someone just needs to rule it. And Rekoa sort of suggests like maybe people will change when the war is over. And Sirocco's like, no, no, no. People don't change on their own. You have to make them change. 
you could be that leader. Which almost feels like an afterthought. Well, we know he has this fixation on a woman leader and that he is going to put her there. Rekua looks down and says, I risked everything for you, which feels very much like a, I don't want this. You know, I don't want this. And yet. <laughs> uh huh. How appropriate that Sirocco talks about changing people to Rekua. When we have posited, there is abundant evidence that Sirocco does change people habitually, everybody around him, including Rekua. Well, and Rekua, someone who constantly argues that she cannot or will not change and shouldn't be forced to. <laughs> yeah, what she says to Emma later, I've chosen to live my life this way, nobody should criticize me for it, is both a, a rejoinder to Emma, but also a response to what Sirocco is saying here. Ultimately, Rekua is an individualist taken to the farthest extreme of that sentiment, that she can make this individual choice and should not have to consider how her choice affects other people. But yeah, I wonder if she, is this when she realizes Sirocco is using her or has she known all along? Hmm. But she didn't mind before because he was treating her like a woman. And then in her last moments, she complains about men who only think about fighting and how to use women. I think she's talking about Sirocco. But it almost feels metatextual at that point, right? <laughs> that like, here is a show about fighting. The only way we can think of using women characters in this show is in fighting or dying in fighting. Or, <laughs> <laughs> But I do think Rekawa's speech in her final moments does represent a moment of clarity both about her own life and about Sirocco. What do you think Emma means when she accuses Rekwa of being too much a woman? <laughs> That's a weird phrase. It is. Well, when we've talked about the, the gender stuff in Zeta, we've highlighted how Rekwa and Emma both represent different approaches to how to be a woman in the world in the 1980s. And Emma's position has very consistently been to be a woman in what is essentially a man's world. You have to give up those things that we think of as womanly. You know, this is why she's not interested in dating. It's why she's never considered whether or not she's going to have kids. She doesn't want to be judged as a woman. She wants to be judged as a person, which in this context means as a man. I'm not sure how much of Emma's disinterest in dating or children is personal and how much of it is a sacrifice on the altar of having a career. And it may not make much of a difference. <laughs> I also ultimately see the two of them, Rekwa and Emma, as passive versus active. Rekwa is all like, I need someone to love me. And oh, I'm just being like buffeted around by these forces. You know, there's a, a rejection of a sense of personal control. I had no choice but to betray Ayug because of how the people in Ayug treated me. Men just use us. She, I mean, she felt used aboard the Argama, but she clearly still feels used aboard the Jupitris. And I think Emma rejects that. We're now going to be talking about Rekua's final line to Emma and what we think it means. In talking about it, we are going to address one theory about its meaning, which involves sexual violence. So content warning for listeners, we are going to be discussing that for the next five minutes and 30 seconds. If you'd like to avoid it, please skip ahead now. 
to the 53 minute, 45 second mark of the podcast. I think this contrast between passive and active comes up again in Rekawa's final line, because after saying, you know, men just use us as tools, she says, or at the very least, humiliate us. And Emma seems doubtful. She's like, was Rekawa humiliated? This final line from Rekawa has inspired a lot of speculation because it is not very clear. I think it's not even clear whether what Rekawa is trying to do here is justify her behavior to Emma or if she is merely making a sort of plaintive cry about the suffering that she has endured, a complaint about the nature of the world being unjust. A warning. Indeed. And it's the very final line when she talks about men humiliating women, the one that Emma echoes after Rekua has died, that has inspired the most speculation. The verb Rekua uses here is hazukashimeru. It means to put to shame, to disgrace, to humiliate, to insult, but it has a secondary meaning, and that is uh, to rape, to assault, or to violate. There is a theory about this line that Rekua is alluding to having been raped. This theory goes on to posit that Rekua was raped while in Ayug, potentially while aboard the Argama, and that that was the real reason for her betrayal. While it's a very interesting theory, I don't think there is episode evidence to support it. I agree. Ultimately, I think this comes from a place of people who do not understand why Rekua betrayed Ayuk to join the Titans and are desperately seeking some explanation. But in our watch through, as we were discussing it, we never really had any doubts about why Rekua betrayed Ayuk. We might disagree with her, but it's pretty clear. She also spends quite a lot of time explaining her reasons to several people, Camille included, and never mentions this particular thing. And while it's certainly possible that she would be cagey about that, talking to a man or, or talking to anyone, I understood this as, again, a reflection on the Sirocco situation. Both an understanding of how Sirocco treated her and Sarah and set them off against each other and used you know, shame and jealousy to drive them, and also his total disregard... <laughs> for what Rekawa has given up, for the sacrifices Rekawa has made, for anything that Rekawa wants. You know, he's chugging along with his plan. It really doesn't matter to him <laughs> what her desires are in this situation. And before that, he assigned her to Basque, who made her do the poison gas operation, an operation that was described in the text as a shameful mission. Rekawa has been consistently humiliated in various ways throughout the show. Even going back to her time in Ayug, she felt like she was being condescended to, like she was humiliated by her failure at Jaburo. And then humiliated when they failed to give her opportunities to make up for that. But I see Emma's surprise afterwards as part of that contrast between the two of them again, because Emma's reaction is not oh, how awful Rekua was humiliated, or even like, oh my gosh, was Rekua humiliated? Like, I think if the implication were that an assault had taken place, Emma's reaction would be much more shock and much less skepticism. I think that skepticism is 
because Emma sees Rekawa as having put herself in the situations or personally misinterpreted those situations to feel shame and humiliation. That like, that Rekawa was a part of all of that, that it's not just something that happened to her. I think Emma is probably slightly wrong. There probably were humiliating things done to Rekawa that she couldn't do anything about. But we've talked at length about how many of the situations Rekawa complains about she puts herself into. The other possibility is, uh, while people who adhere to this theory usually read it as rape, it includes sexual assault, which we saw happen to Rekawa on screen when she infiltrated Jaburo and then somebody tried to do it to her again on the Jupitress. Uh, which is, Attempted. Yeah. So she could literally be talking about those incidents. I don't think so, because despite them happening on screen and clearly being grotesque, the show has never focused on them. And Rekawa has, like you said, never talked about those things as though they were particularly motivating for her. I do want to point out, we understand that there are a lot of circumstances in which a person who's been assaulted would not talk about that with anyone and would keep that very quiet. Uh, you know, fear of retribution or feelings of personal responsibility or shame. Uh, we just think within the context of the show, given the way that she's been written, we don't think that's what's at play here. Both before and then after that final confrontation with Rekoa, Camille and Emma share two emotionally charged scenes. Both scenes are structured in a similar way, with Camille finding a dazed Emma out in space and leaving the mobile suit to go out in person to talk to her. In the first one, she seems almost catatonic. She's not really responsive. She mentions that she saw Henken as he died. And she is clearly grief-stricken by his death. I don't know if they ever did go on a date. <laughs> she implies that she would be willing to go on one with him at one point much earlier in the show. So maybe they did. I don't know. Regardless, she's distraught. And so staggered by everything that's happened. She's not even crying or screaming or anything. She's just staring off into the distance. At first, Camille's like, we won't let them get away with this. And Camille takes his sometimes attitude of, I'm going to kill people in service of ending the war as quickly as possible. We have to end this. He'll recall this later when he is in the process of chasing down Yazan. And at first it seems like a contradiction because he says life is the most important thing. Lives are power. Human life is what holds up the universe. You need to die. And what Camille is getting at here is something like the paradox of tolerance, which is this idea that for a tolerant society to exist and continuing to exist, it has to be intolerant of the intolerant. So for Camille, he does have to kill killers like Yazan. People who take joy in it, people who are driven by it for no other purpose than because they want to. And he talks about ending the war and he says if they don't, then the the Earth's sphere, the universe will be too stifling a place to live in. And I think he's talking about oppression and violence. And then he opens the faceplate of his normal suit helmet. He opens the faceplate of his normal suit helmet at the moment he is saying the word stifling. So that he doesn't even, I mean, he finishes saying it, but you can't hear the end of it because the helmet is open. 
The way they cut out the audio at that moment was so good. Such a nice detail. The word he says is ikigurushi, which can be translated to mean stifling, but it means like choking, suffocating, or oppressive. So very appropriate that he's saying like suffocating as he pops the visor. But why does he pop the visor? What's your read on that? So we have discussed that he is maybe not completely at grips with reality. I think that and his new type abilities might mean that he's sort of forgotten where he is slash forgotten that he can die. <laughs> I'm not even sure he was consciously aware that he was doing it. His hand kind of looks like it's moving on its own. And then afterwards, it's Emma who closes the visor. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, Camille, do you realize what you just did? And he ignores it. He, he doesn't, doesn't acknowledge it. Yeah. <laughs> well, but so do you think there's like a subconscious suicidality or what do you, what do you think? I think that's a real possibility. I think the other possibility is he's thinking about suffocating and his body is kind of moving autonomously, which might connect to when he is, you know, screaming his rage into the universe and the Zeta is just firing overhead again, kind of autonomously. Like his subconscious mind is in control of his body and of his metal body. If somebody had just described this scene to me without having watched it and listened to it, I might think that what he was trying to do was just to like shock Emma out of her stupor and back to reality. But when you actually watch it, it doesn't feel like that at all. It seems completely unconscious, a gesture. And because he says it mid-word, it's not like he makes a dramatic point and then does it. It actually interrupts what he's trying to say. Maybe he just wants to be one with the universe, Tom. Maybe he just wants to go see Four and Rosamia again. And Jared. You think Jared's out there too? Is Gates out there? <laughs> <laughs> Stupid Gates. What was he even for? At the end, Camille rescues Emma. I love this scene. This one really gets me. I had to watch the scene in which she gets injured twice because it happens very fast. But she somewhat foolishly has gotten out of her mobile suit to look at Rekoa's mobile suit. And then when Rekoa's mobile suit explodes, a piece of the debris, a piece of the shrapnel hits Emma, I believe. I don't think it's shrapnel. I think it's just the blast wave. Because she mentions that her normal suit is okay. Is okay. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just the, um, the, blast. the blast damage. She seems a bit surprised that anyone has come for her. She says, thank you for finding me. And that just, every time I hear it, makes me think of all of the people who have been killed or thrown out into space and just lost there. Go back to the beginning of the show, and a few episodes opened with the corpse of a Xeon soldier drifting through space. Go back to the death of Camille's mother or his father, whose bodies are just drifting forever. Earlier this episode, when the Bridge of the Radish was exploded... Yeah. How horrible to be alone like that, to be abandoned like that. And he starts to pick her up to take her back to the Argama and asks her, where does it hurt? And she says, it's just everywhere, my whole body. <laughs> and they drift together into the wreck of a Titan's spaceship. And that's where the episode closes. It's a very melancholy ending after such an exciting episode. 
And again, with no sense of triumph for anyone. There's no sense that Ayug is winning. There is no sense that Axis is winning. There is no sense that the Titans are winning. Soroko is still alive. Haman is still alive. Most of our Ayug people are still alive. What comes next? And now our research on the third eye. As we mentioned in the talkback, the lightning flash in the center of Camille's forehead and the late in the episode beam of light that shoots out from his forehead just above and between his eyes is definitely a reference to the third eye or Ajna chakra, sometimes called the guru or third eye chakra. The third eye concept appears in esoteric or tantric Hinduism and Buddhism theosophy and new age religions, and has even been discussed by Christian mystics. It can represent a higher consciousness, the subconscious mind, a state of enlightenment, and the ability to perceive beyond ordinary sense perception, including clairvoyance, precognition, and out-of-body experiences. It can, quote, connect people to their intuition, give them the ability to communicate with the world, or help them receive messages from the past and future. It can even, in some theories, allow for mind-to-mind communication between two people. Chakra are focal points within the body. Beyond that very general statement, specific theories about them vary by religion and sect. Different Hindu sources list six or seven chakra, while Buddhist sources have anywhere from three to six. One of the most studied systems consists of seven, arranged in a vertical line along the center of the body, from the base of the spine up through to the top of the head. Depending on the tradition, chakra are arranged in different ways and have different associated practices, including meditation, yoga, breathing exercises, visualizations, mudras, which are ritual gestures or poses, and mantras. Many of these practices are about strengthening chakra or about moving energy through the body between them. Depending on the religious tradition, this energy can be called chi or ki or prana. The progression of energy from the lowest chakra to the highest is considered an internal representation of the elevation of consciousness. And in some traditions, like Silat, which is from Malaysia and Indonesia mostly, the energy can also be put to use for energy healing or martial arts. Interestingly, some animals, including most lizards, frogs, salamanders, and sharks, have what is called a parietal eye centered on the top of their head. It is small and covered with skin, so it's not easily visible, but it's part of their brain and is photosensitive. It regulates body temperature and circadian rhythm, which is to say, the body's cycle of sleep and wakefulness. It includes the pineal gland, which is where things get a bit twisty. In humans, the pineal gland is a small, pine nut-shaped part of the brain, about the size of a grain of rice, and positioned on the midline of the brain. I could tell you what it does, but that's actually irrelevant for our current discussion. (laughs) The 2nd and 3rd century Greek doctor philosopher Galen of Pergamon wrote the earliest extant description of the pineal gland. Earlier theories, for which we have no records, posited that the gland regulated the flow of psychic pneuma in the brain. Pneuma being a mixture of air and fire, the animating force in humans, or breath of life. 
We know about these theories because Galen didn't agree with them and wrote about it extensively. But it's somewhat unclear from the sources I've read what he actually thought the pineal gland did. The idea that this gland regulated the movement of spirit through the body made a comeback in the Middle Ages, but was largely refuted during the Renaissance when it was discovered that the ventricles of the brain were in fact full of fluid and not full of gaseous spirits. 17th century philosopher René Descartes believed that the pineal gland was the seat of the soul, the place at which our souls were connected to our earthly bodies, a fact that he discussed in both his first and last books. He also believed the pineal gland to be involved in sensation, imagination, memory, and, quote, causation of bodily movements. As an aside, it's worth pointing out that he based his theories on a lot of ideas about the human body that had already been proven wrong in his own time. And many rejected this specific theory on the basis that animals, who were not thought to have a soul or imaginative faculties, also have pineal glands. We are just about to come full circle, bear with me. If some of the early Western ideas about the pineal gland as associated with the soul, the spirit, and perception seem vaguely similar to the third eye associations in Hinduism, Buddhism, and other religious traditions I mentioned earlier, you are not the first to make that connection. Helena Blavatsky, a Russian occultist, philosopher, and writer, suggested that the pineal gland was an atrophied vestigial organ that corresponded to the third eye, that the chakra was based in this physical, quote, organ of spiritual vision. Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society in 1875, a new religious movement and part of the occultist strain of Western esotericism, as well as a precursor to New Age religions. Theosophy was a major force in bringing knowledge of Asian religions to the West, as well as being influential in arts and culture. The pineal gland and its association with perception beyond ordinary perception even makes an appearance in the H.P. Lovecraft short story, From Beyond. In a very cyber-new-typey turn of events, a doctor in the story has invented a machine that emits a resonance wave in order to stimulate and strengthen a person's pineal gland, giving them the ability to see and interact with other planes of existence. We've previously seen the influence of New Age religions in Zeta Gundam. There would also have been prevalent knowledge of the Third Eye concept in Japan, I imagine. But this additional research has me thinking that, in some ways, new types are represented by the older religious traditions and cyber new types by the new religious movements, mainly because in the new religious movements, we start to see some fusion of religion and science that strikes me as similar to the way new types are presented. This idea of scientific explanations for spiritual phenomena, the idea that you can perhaps create these phenomena through electronic stimulus, the use of drugs, etc. The interactivity we've seen between cyber new type brainwaves and mobile suit technology, that all seems more characteristic of new religions than of the older religious traditions. Interestingly, if you look at even newer religious traditions, like, for instance, Aoma Shinrikyo in Japan and other uh, new religious movements in Japan in the 1980s and the 1990s, there is going to be a kind of feedback loop where those religious traditions are going to be inspired by pop culture, inspired by anime, inspired by uh, Gundam and new type theory in particular, 
And they're going to build theories around elevating humanity to become like new types. File that one away as research for another day. <laughs> there are so many similarities between the idea of enlightenment, the idea of the third eye, and the way that new types are presented that I don't think it can possibly be a coincidence. There are simply too many similarities. The idea of sort of clear sight and true understanding that the ability to use this chakra enables you to communicate with the world, to receive messages from the past and future. I feel like in a lot of places I could have just said, new types can. <laughs> <laughs> you could just replace third eye or ashna chakra with new types and uh, you would get an explanation of what new types are in Gundam. What I find really interesting about this research you've done is the way you're sort of talking about a blending of the scientific understanding of how the brain works with this mythic idea of elevated consciousness and connection to the universe. And a lot of the stuff you talked about with the pineal gland is about trying to create an anatomic scientific understanding for extrasensory capabilities. And isn't that what the new type theory is? We're talking about a way of scientificizing these truly fantastical abilities. You didn't think we were going to let all of those deaths go by without even one memorial, did you? If you don't count Dunkel Cooper and Ramses Hassa, Yazan's wingmen, there are four major character deaths in this episode. And since Dunkel and Ramses account for less than five lines between the two of them in all of Zeta, I'm not going to count them. Yazan escapes the destruction of his Humbrabi in a small ejection capsule, and Emma Sheen, although badly wounded, survives through the end of the episode. So there are four important deaths to mark. Katz Kobayashi, born Katz Howen, Henken Beckner, Jared Mesa, and Rekua Londo. In the Chinese languages, and those like Japanese and Korean that were influenced by them, four is the number of death. Like Unlucky 13 in the Western tradition, four is a number to be avoided. The word for she in Japanese is cognate with death. She is death. She knew to die. Casualties are shishosha. None of the deaths in this episode will leave corpses behind to be recovered and mourned or left to drift on forever. But if they had, corpses are shinin or shibito, simply death person. Perhaps we ought to have known that for Murasame was doomed from the start. Zeta Gundam marks the passing of certain major characters with a unique audio cue. It plays in incomplete form for Camille's mother. Then for the first time in full when Camille's father dies in episode 5. Here it plays for Lila in episode 7. It plays for 4 in episode 36.
and for Appley in episode 45. Four chords descending. Each note lands heavily, like the footfalls of some doom approaching. But it does not play for any of the characters in this episode, for the doom is already here. While it may seem that the deaths of these four characters are random and needlessly cruel, meant to emphasize the mortal cost of war for heroes and villains alike, if those broad categories can even be said to apply to the cast of Zeta Gundam, in fact, each one is the result of the choices that those characters have made throughout Zeta. And each one is challenged within this episode and given a chance to step away from the path that leads to their death. Instead, each chooses to double down when they could have walked away. How appropriate that what really kills Katz is not a beam saber or a barrage of mega particles, but his own inertia. So foolishly, suicidally straightforward, that he always charged ahead without thinking of the consequences, so unwilling to ever learn or grow in ways that would change his course, unable or unwilling to look around and see where he is going. How many times did Camille try to warn him? Dance there upon the shore, what need have you to care for wind or water's roar? and tumble out your hair that the salt drops have wet. Being young, you have not known the fool's triumph, nor yet love lost as soon as won. And he, the best warrior, dead all the sheaves to bind. What need that you should dread the monstrous crying of the wind? To a Child Dancing Upon the Shore by William Butler Yeats And Captain Henken Beckner. He wandered in and out of the story, so we never got to know him properly. But remember all the way back to his introduction. He told us how he commanded a cruiser during the climactic battles at the end of First Gundam and the One Year War. But he held back toward the rear of the fleet. In Zeta, he makes up for that. With an eagerness verging on recklessness, he is quick to seize the initiative. In the way he courted Emma, in the way he never much minded when a teenager jacked one of the mobile suits on his ship, we can see that he was a man of energy and action. Where Bright's captaincy has been marked by personal discipline, forethought, and caution, Beckner was all impatience. He had to act, even when his timing was bad. Even so, perhaps he would have held back for the sake of his crew. But it's clear that their captain rubbed off on them. He had his foibles, but they loved him all the more for it. At the end, when the vulnerable radish charged into that seething vortex ruled by the mobile suits, Emma told him to retreat, and he, knowing the risk, refused. Challenge and chase me, storm. Harry and hate me, wave. Wild as the wind is my heart, but warm and sudden and merry and brave. For the water comes up with a shout, the water comes up to me, and oh, but I laugh, laugh out, and the great gulls laugh, and the sea. From Storm Dance by Fanny Stearns Davis. Jared didn't need to come out to fight today. 
He could have given up on his vendetta a dozen times before today. And even after everything, Camille still gave him a chance to leave. It's you who keeps driving me to fight, Jared screams. But Camille jetted away from their first engagement without a second thought. It's Jared who couldn't let it go. Perhaps that is what Camille means when he accuses Jared. It's because of people like you that the fighting continues. But Jared refuses the call to self-reflection. His response is more rage, more violence. And when his bound dock goes careening into the expanding fireball that was once the radish, even his last words, his last thoughts, are about Camille and about himself. The obsession that brought him to that ignominious ending still consumes him, even on the threshold of death. No more in the great sea's breast need answer thy behest. No more thy sullen gun shall greet the risen sun. Where the great dreadnoughts ride, the breast of thy cold bride, thou hast fulfilled thy fate, need trade no more with hate. From Dirge for a Dead Admiral by Samuel McCoy. And what more can we say about Rekawa than we already have? Was her betrayal the result of Sirocco working his version of magic to turn her brain into mush, or simply a consequence of the emotional wounds inflicted on her by the one-year war that have festered ever since, until there was nothing inside her except the self-destructive craving for someone who would make her feel loved? Love her or hate her, and yes, I'm aware how much more heavily the fandom falls on one side of that equation than the other, Rekawa's personal story is one of Zeta's most important, and most fully realized. How many times did Camille and Fa and Emma try to talk Rekawa out of her course? How many times did she endure some new trial, some fresh humiliation, in order to stay close to Sirocco? Even at the end, when her faith in him seemed shaken, and Emma tried to reach her one last time, Rekawa refused. I have a right to live my life the way I choose, she insisted, and died, her last words dripping with bitter resentment. All for what? I am the woman, Ark of the Law and its breaker, who chastened her steps and taught her knees to be meek bridled and bitted her heart and humbled her cheek. Parceled her will and cried, take more to the taker. Shunned what they told her to shun, sought what they bade her seek. Locked up her mouth from scornful speaking. Now it is open to speak. From I Am The Woman by William Vaughn Moody. When heroes die, their deaths ripple outward. They are felt and mourned by those they leave behind. Katz follows Sarah into death, but everyone feels his presence in his last moments. And thousands of miles away, back on earth, his mother and father his sister and brother may have felt it too. They will mourn him long after he is gone. 
Beckner and the crew of the Radish die together. He thinks of Emma as he dies, and she sees his last moments. But the Titans die alone. No one will mourn for Rekoa now, not even those who wept for her false death when she abandoned Ayuk. As for Jared, no one will even remember him. Next time on episode 2.51, All Together Now, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 50 and Women as Batteries, a machine that eats souls to win wars. The B team gets some lines. Interesting. Haman asks the question of the series. Rock, paper, Sirocco. Fa cuts to the chase. Very interesting. Drawn and quattroed. Paptimus shrugged. Where angels fear to tread. And what happens now? You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, Camille is superfluous. Cats should have been the main character. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you. But the world needs to know. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. As your sourdough started going, glad to hear it, your precious child. This week in Dispatches, I have become one of those people. I have created (laughs) a sourdough starter. People are going to be about how we pronounce things anyway. I'd prefer not to think about it while I'm talking. Mysteries for the sake of mysteries that never get solved was my problem with Lost Hmm. and why I stopped watching it after, what, like two seasons? (laughs) One and a half seasons? I don't remember. (laughs) I didn't watch very much of it. I'm just trying to think of a good transition, unless you can think of one. Speaking of new types. (laughs) That's a transition. (laughs) 
wrote this down. I wrote down the sequence. Uh, good note. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> Touching is not the word I want. Tense? No. Emotionally charged? Yes. No sound in the vacuum of space, y'all. Challenge and chase me, storm. Harry and hate me, wave. Wild as the wind is my heart, but warm, sudden and merry and brave. The third eye concept appears in esoteric or tantric. Oh, no. Phone ringing. <laughs> like the new type sound. I'm getting a message. Galen? Galen. Gundam Z Zeta. Gundam ZZ. Gundam Zeta. Yay, we're done. I was just thinking how few, like, real relationships Camille has in this whole show. Oh, yeah.